everyone and welcome back to The Extras. My name is Jack. And I'm James. Good to be with you here, James, and good to be with all of you listening as well. We love having people text in their questions as we grapple with the Word of God Sunday by Sunday. We love spending this time during the week getting to wrestle over them and chew the fat around the Bible and the kinds of things that you all out there are thinking about it. So really excited for our time to get together today. James, for those who maybe missed Sunday or need some reminding, can you just tell us what have we been thinking about in the Bible the last little while and what were you preaching on? We've been in Joel the last few weeks and on Sunday we had the third in our series and we've hit a turning point in the book of Joel, a point where not only are we have, we've seen destruction, we've seen uh, the hope of restoration, but here we see God promising to act. And what he is very keen to tell his people is that relief is coming. And so we saw this turning point happen in Joel chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. And we saw some amazing promises of restoration. And we saw how they're applied in Jesus now and in the future. And so we can be glad and rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, really helpful. And that, I mean, that line, yeah, relief is coming, just one of those lines that just really sticks with you and it's just yeah it's a wonderful promise like after the destruction we've seen this this truth that relief is on the way you know hallelujah praise the lord we're, we're still hanging out for that relief now in many ways aren't we but um thank Amen. you for, for yeah, exactly but thank you for bringing the word to us it's been it's been a, a good time uh we got lots of questions that came in over sunday which is great we're gonna get straight into it and get into some of them now a couple of you know lighter ones to start which is always fun you're always welcome to text in which whatever you like of course james someone has asked what the flip does cataclysmic, or however it's spelled, mean? So a little <laughs> clarification question for you there, a word that you may have dropped in the sermon at some point. That's right, that's right. And it's worth saying that the first time I ever came across the word cataclysmic or cataclysm was when I was seven or eight watching a cartoon called Yu-Gi-Oh! And it was, <laughs> it was about an epic destruction that's coming on the land. So that's what cataclysmic means. It's... It's epic destruction, normally tied to some kind of natural disaster. And the judgment we've seen in Joel is cataclysmic. And so uh, perhaps it would have been better if I defined the word uh, as I used it. All good. That's all right. Always good to, you know, sit there with a dictionary while you're listening to the sermon. No, we're, we're just joking. <laughs> Fun fact for those playing at home um, comes from the Greek word kataklusmos, which means the flood, which in the Bible is often oh. referring back to the flood in Genesis 6. So that kind of, you know, yeah, deluge that destroys the world. That's where the idea of a cataclysm comes from. There you go. Thanks for that. That's helpful. Uh, next one, another little fun one to start. Uh, someone's texted in a good sermon by James. There you go, a bit of encouragement for you, James. Um, but Thank if you. I had a query from his sermon, it would be that he was talking about the land and the people being tied together. And yet what was happening with the dehydrated plant that was near you when you were giving the sermon, James? <laughs> well, clearly I, I must still have been dehydrated and, and longing and for relief from my thirst. But, that's uh, right. Yeah. Waiting for the rains to come. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, those plants that we've got, uh, fun fact, I think they were all put there last, last January during Summerfest, and they just stuck there on the stage as an aesthetic thing. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. But, um, yeah, I, I hope it's not a sign of where of what my fate is. Yeah, indeed, that's right. Yep, fake plants, you know, just there for uh, for looks. I mean, if they're looking a little dehydrated, that's alarming. How do you kill a fake plant? That's 
That's true. Yeah, something That's someone true. of my kind of gardening talent might be able to do that. But yeah, great <laughs> observation there from whoever's picked that up. Thank you. All right. Coming on to, um, I guess, getting into it a bit more seriously now. Uh, someone has asked, is there any external archaeological or historical evidence of God providing all this new wine and olive oil and grain overflowing in the land that Joel's talking about? Yes, so I think the question here is referring to the fact that in the passage we do get these amazing promises like in verse 19 of chapter 2, the Lord replies to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. In verse 24, talking about how the threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I think it would be, well, to answer the question directly, I'm not sure. It, it would be very hard for, for grain and, and oil and wine to, to continue to be present some, you know, 2,600 years after the fact. There is a lot of archaeological evidence outside of the Bible for other parts of, the, uh, of what we see in Scripture. For example, fun fact, Jack, um, the Pool of Siloam in, in John's Gospel mm. was found in 2004. And uh, yeah, right. Nazareth was found in 2009 so you know there's a lot of archaeological work that's happening even in recent years mm. but i'm not sure i think that's my answer to this question i'm not sure do, do you do you know of any external archaeological evidence on this front i mean as you said like it's it's the kind of thing that's quite hard to yeah how would you find evidence of this i mean maybe if you had this layer in the archaeological digs where all of a sudden there was a hundred times as more many fragments of you know olive oil jars or something like Maybe, but yeah. The thing about archaeology is that it's it's very scant the evidence we do have, and and sometimes people out there use the lack of um, archaeological evidence of things in the Bible to say it must have never happened. I mean, the problem with that is that we're discovering stuff all the time. I mean, like you said, like I imagine that 50 years ago someone was saying, "Oh, look, Nazareth never even existed. You know, this city where Jesus is meant to have lived. It's just no one's found it." And then, well, and then someone digs in a different spot and you find it, like. We're talking about, you know, bits and pieces of pots and walls from over 2,000 years ago that have just survived in the desert. Like, that stuff's hard to find, and we are digging up more all the time. One of the little um, lines that's helpful when you think about archaeology and how it relates to anything, but the Bible in particular, is that um, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because you don't find something in the dig doesn't mean it never happened. Like, there's all sorts of reasons why it's hard to find the evidence or it doesn't survive yeah so anything that we do find that confirms the bible is amazing and there is there's stacks of it out there yeah there's there's a little book you can get called um an introduction to biblical archaeology and i i think it's an awesome book it's, it's it's quite amazing to see the things that we have dug up in the desert that show you you know that mention um king david and you know there's there's amazing stuff out there but yeah i don't think it impacts necessarily what we're seeing in joel all that much yeah good to think about though yeah we were saying, James, this before, one. this is a little its a little hobby of mine. You know, don't get me started on biblical archaeology because it's a, it's a deep warrant, but um, maybe some other time. Yes. We'll keep going. If I can add one yeah. more thing to yeah, that, yeah, sure. though, it's just to say that the other thing is whether or not um, there is archaeological evidence for it that still exists, not to say that there never was, mm. the ultimate fulfillment still can't be found in the nation of Israel itself. The ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus, what he has done and what is still to come. Um, and then I, I, I just try to draw that out on Sunday in the sermon as well. 
Yeah, so don't miss the, the bigger point that, yeah, this text points beyond itself in that time. Yeah, that's important too. No, that's good. We'll keep going. Uh, someone has texted in, James, can you clarify how I, as a non-Jew, link into this promise that seems to be directed to the nation of Israel? And how, if at all, the modern-day nation of Israel or Jewish people today fit into that picture? Mm. There's some big, big questions here. And on one level, I want to say, come back for our next sermon series when we're going through Romans 9 to 11, and this question will most certainly come up once again. To, to provide a, the, the start of an answer, though, and to, to go back to our sermon series from last term, um, in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're just trying to open it up. Um, so some of us will remember last term, we were going through the book of Ephesians, a series called Rebels of Grace. And we hit this point in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, uh, where the Apostle Paul writes, uh, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so part of the amazing uh, the glory of the gospel is that now uh, non-Jews can be partakers of these promises that were given to the nation of Israel. And you see this echo throughout you know, so much of the New Testament, Jesus talking about in John 15, you know, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And so if we're connected to Jesus, who is the vine, the, 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 the true Israelite, the, the true receiver of these promises, we get them as well. Mm. And we'll hear this sort of language again about being in, grafted in, in fact, in, in Romans chapter 11. So it's just the start of an answer. I know that I haven't addressed uh, the, the second part of the question, um, but I would say come back to, uh, for, for our next sermon series. Yeah, helpful. Another thing I'd add, like as we read the Old Testament, one of the reasons it can be hard sometimes is because the things we read do feel a little abstract and distant. And yeah, this prophet was speaking to this nation that is on the other side of the world and, you know, two and a half thousand years ago in time. I think it's important to remember, though, what the New Testament says about the old. So a verse like Romans 15 verse 14 is just crucial, which says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. I think that's amazing. What was written, you know, what Joel said in his prophecies, what was written down for the nation of Israel is ultimately not for Israel. It's ultimately for us, for we who are in Christ reading these words and reading how they've been fulfilled in Jesus. And it's, yeah, it's just always important to remember that. Like, don't be discouraged as you read the Old Testament, you know, if it feels distant like it is. And, and there's challenges there as we think about how to understand it and how to understand what was going on in that culture, all those sorts of things. But these words are for you. Like these words are in the sovereign wisdom of God. They were written for Israel, but ultimately they were, they were written for people like me and you to, to hear and to, to respond to and to be encouraged by. And that's a verse that has always, whenever, whenever the Old Testament feels hard to understand or hard to engage with, I go back to that verse and just be like, yep, got to remember that. This is, this is for me. This is for my encouragement. And I hope it's for your encouragement too. Yeah. Let's keep going. Uh, someone is, uh, this is... Just full disclosure, this is a question I texted in. You know, every now and again, you know, we on the staff like to put a question in as well. Um, James, one of the things you said in at Morning Church, um, you're talk, talking about uh, our kind of, you know, as, as the, is this fulfilled for us? And we talk about the blessings that God's given us. You said something like, um, 
whatever you've done in the past, whatever you will do in the future, like, you know, nothing's going to, um, I can't remember exactly what you said, but there's that kind of line. Um, my question was, you know, if God accepts us regardless of what we're going to do, why are we told at other points in the Bible things like Romans 11 verse 20, which I'll read for you. So um, this is in my mind because, you know, as you mentioned, we're coming up to Romans 9 to 11 and I'm, and I'm preaching part of that series. So I'm thinking about some of these verses. Romans 11, you have um, Paul talking about how the Jewish people were these branches that were broken off so that Gentiles could be grafted in. We'll get unpacking that a few weeks' time. But he tells Christians listening into this, um, note the, the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. That's verse 22. Yeah, I mean, we've got verses like that that tell us to, you know, tremble and be aware. Like, how do we think about that as Christians? Mm. Thanks, Jack. And I think that it's it's a helpful uh, thing there to, to question how uh, a line um, fits within the broader scale of what we see in the Bible. I think that you're right that the regardless of what we will do, well, the qualifier to that from Romans 11 is, will you continue in the kindness that God has shown? Put in other language, will you continue in the grace of Jesus? Will you stay rooted in him? Will you continue to abide by him? Will you obey his commands and, and walk as a disciple of his? I think in the context of the, the sermon and Joel 2, the point of lasting security is what I was seeking to draw out. Mm. I think your helpful question here does show that um, we do need to take the whole of Scripture and we also need to, to, to qualify some statements sometimes. Mm. And I think that if I could qualify it again, that regardless of what we will do is is more talk, trying to talk about how God does have a plan to provide this lasting eternal security. And when we see from the broader scope of the Bible, that broader lasting eternal security is staying rooted and grounded in Christ as his people in continuing to return to the Lord. Yeah, helpful. Yeah, and thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hearing, and I, I wasn't hearing you say on Sunday that um, anything different, but just good to clarify like that kind of language you know whatever we will do it's not like you're encouraging us to just okay well it doesn't matter what i do so i can go and sin it up and you know um <laughs> yeah it's a it's a more kind of christ-centered picture of this life that this secure mm. life that we've been called to turn back to yeah and I like yeah that. that's right and i think that that's where the it's important to, to 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 read things in context as well so you know if we just read this passage without the first half of the book of joel will miss that we have seen that the reality of God's judgment for those who have turned from him will miss that everything God is promising here is in response to his people returning to him. Mm. And so to take these outside of that context, you know, to say, oh, you don't need to return to God. God doesn't judge. There's nothing bad that isn't the, you're just not, we're not, we wouldn't be reading it in context. And so, I, I'm appreciative of questions like this that go, actually, can you help us try to remember where we are and how this all fits within the broader picture? Nice. Thank you. Let's keep going. Slight change attack here. Someone's zeroing in on verse 25 of Joel chapter 2. So talking about the locusts, the years they've taken. And at the end of that verse, God says, the locusts are my great army that I sent among you. So the person's question uh, texted in, God sent the locusts, did God send coronavirus? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a pointed question with a clear answer that needs explanation. And the clear answer is yes. Um, we do see here in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, God did send locusts. We see um, throughout the Bible, God is uh, gives life and takes it away. Um, he brings restoration. Um, he sends calamity. There's that word again. He sends disaster. Mm. God is in absolute sovereign control over his whole creation. Um, there's an American who's a theologian pastor who passed away a few years ago now in 2017, but his name's R.C. Sproul, and one of his most memorable lines, for me at least, was, uh, there are no maverick molecules. Mm. Um, there, are, there are no molecules in the universe that are outside of the sovereign hand of God. No um, maverick viruses either then. That's right. And yes, that, that, thanks, thanks, Jack. So the, there are no maverick viruses. There are no maverick disasters. There are no maverick um, uh, um, terrible things that happen. And that's a clear answer. It does require some explanation as well behind it. For example, on one level, you might see this and see, hey, wait, and that's really bad. But think about the alternative. What assurance would we have that God can truly and finally and totally restore all his people if he wasn't in absolute sovereign control over all things? You know, if if God wasn't in control of coronavirus, then what assurance do I have that if I pray to God to have mercy and and to bring relief that he could actually do it? Mm. Um if God. I can, I mean, sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. No, please, go for it, Jack. Yeah, sure, that's right. I mean, just to kind of keep drilling in and, I guess, pressing the point, no maverick molecules, okay, so God has sent the virus. I mean, this is a virus that's caused, you know, massive devastation to our world, hundreds of thousands of people dead um, in our community, like, you know, people dying, uh, restrictions, you know, all this sorts of stuff, like human suffering attached to this thing that God has sent. What does that mean about God? Like, would a good God do that? Yeah, and, and that's, that's I think that is pretty much, I, I would say that is probably the question behind the question. Um, because whether or not God sent it, I think that the, the broader question is, what does this tell us about God? And I think we have another question that is sort of related to that as well that's come in. Should we ask that next one then? Um, yeah. Is this it's, the next one? It's, or? it's all related. Yeah, yeah okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you tackled this question at Night Church, and then we had a couple of questions come in after Night Church asking for further drilling into this. So let's ask one of those. So in regards to, James, your response in question time, if God created everything, how did he not create evil? Also, don't you think that God's sovereignty means he has some responsibility for the virus, even if it is just a response to our sin, etc.? Mm-hmm. So to answer that second part there, yes, absolutely. And I'm sorry if I wasn't clear enough on that, that, he, he does have responsibility for the virus in the sense that he is the one who sent it. He is the one who is in absolute sovereign control of his creation. The point there about saying that God did not create evil, it is one of those things that the Bible also asserts, that he is not the author of evil. But there's something that needs to be said here, which is throughout Joel, throughout the Bible, 
God does send just, righteous judgment against evil, against our evil, in fact, against against our uh, our sin. And when that is sent, it's not unjust. When God sends judgment, it's not evil. Uh, it's not unjust. It's not immoral. Uh, it is it is right and proper. And so I think we've got to be careful here. I think there's two things to say here. One is, yes, God did not, uh, does not, um, it is not the author of evil. And yet things like disasters, the frustration our creation experiences, um, uh, pandemics, we need to see them in the context of God's judgment that is being poured out on our world because of our evil and our sin. And so it's a, I think it's a mistake for us to, to, to see that and go, oh, God is doing something unjust to mm. us, or God is doing something evil to us, even though, the, yes, we do see death, we do see um, loss, we do see disconnectedness. We have to remember that these things, these terrible sufferings are actually a result of God's right and just judgment against us for what we have done. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that there? Like, I, think, I think that's really important. Yeah. I think that we can see, well, suffering, I feel bad. That must be someone doing wrong to me, but suffering and evil are not the same thing. Like that we experience adverse consequences in this world. If we don't deserve them, that is a bad thing. That's injustice. But the picture of the Bible is that human beings have just radically destroyed our relationship with God. And as you've said, God is rightly angry about that. And the suffering we experience is the response. It's not wrong because it is deserved because sinners have offended the infinite glory and goodness of God. And that, that stings for us. I think like that's like, that's hard. There's, there's a, there's a severity there, I guess, which is exactly right. I mean, you read a book like Joel and you see the, the severity of God against sin. God is well within his rights to, to punish the world in rebellion against him. And that's hard for us to hear, but mm. it's the truth the Bible puts forward. Um, yes. I think another thing that can be, I mean, picking up on something else you said there, um, there's a distinction that the philosophers make, which I think is helpful and unhelpful, and I'll get to the unhelpful in a minute, but first the helpful part. Um, you can distinguish uh, moral evil from natural evil. So moral evil is the, the bad things that people do. So when, when someone steals something, when, you know, when a, when a government goes to an unjust just war, like there is, there's moral evil that humans commit and are culpable for. And then there's what's called natural evil, which is, yeah, natural disasters, viruses, earthquakes, those kinds of things. Natural evil is a bad name for it on two fronts. Firstly, because it's not natural, because this isn't the way the world should be, because sin has trashed the world that God made good. And secondly, because it's not really evil, because evil is, like, again, this culpable wrongness, and those things aren't evil in that sense. They are, you know, the just punishment upon our sin, like we've been saying. But if you can forgive that that label is bad on two counts, like, I think that distinguishing disasters from evil is is important, I think, in thinking about God's responsibility for them. Like, I think, I mean, to keep the discussion going forward, like, I guess one of the, the things, things that we feel in response to that is, well, this feels like God's being, you know, vindictive to me, like I'm suffering, I'm being punished. Like, I'll go on to the next question, which picks up on that. Um, mm. Someone's asked, James, you said it's because of our sin. That's the cause of the destruction in the world. Were you talking about original sin and then our sin follows on from that? Um, or were you talking about, sorry, have I reading this right? Hang on. Was he talking about original sin and then our sin that follows on? Or talking about the sin of you and me today? 
Um, yeah, I think this person wanted to clarify the question as well. So let's clarify the question. If I can rephrase the question, yeah, I mean, is is God punishing you know, humanity in general for sin in general? Or when I get sick with, if, you know, if I get sick with COVID-19, am I being punished for my sin? I guess that's the heart of the question, isn't it? Yeah. What would you say to that? Yeah, and I think that this question here is uh, drawing from the second part of my answer that I gave, which is to say, which is touching on the fact that um, uh, a lot of the suffering and the pain uh, that we feel um, is God responding to 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 our sin, uh, and so we we bear responsibility as well because all of us as sinners um, bring our sin. Excuse me, we sin in the world. Um, we live in a world that is filled with people who sin, and God's just judgment is a response to that. Um, so to answer the question then, was he talking about original sin, then our sin that follows, or the sin of the sin, or the your sin and, and my sin today? I think it's both. It's it's all of it. It's the totality of it. Um, we don't. I don't think that the Bible says that we're just being judged because of the sin of Adam. Actually, the the wrath of God, Romans one, is being poured out on all unrighteousness and and all sin of humanity. Um, and so it's, it's all of us. And so I think we've got to be careful here. It could be possible that you look at your own suffering and pain that you're experiencing and go, wow, my, my pain must be extra bad because I am especially sinful. Um, and the Bible doesn't draw us there. It doesn't lead us there. There are so many places that we could look to where we see that, that, that is a conclusion that, that we just can't draw. Uh, the book of Job comes to mind, or um, the, the 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 man that Jesus healed in John chapter nine, where people around Jesus, you know, said, "Was it because his parents were especially sinful that that he was born this way?" And the answer is no. Mm. Um, now we have to be careful here because we can't then go the other way, which is to say, well, um, you know, your personal sin has no impact, perhaps, on, on the kind of pain and suffering you're going through. I mean, just to take a, a pretty, you know, shallow example, um, if if you uh, drink and drive and you have an accident and you hurt yourself, that is a, a source of pain and suffering that has come about in response to your sin. Mm. Um, but I think that the broader point here is to say that the destruction we see in the world, the pain and suffering, is because of sin. We can't, in particular, draw a one-to-one connection. To say, well, you know, the reason why you're suffering so badly is because you did this. We don't have the tools to be able to make that sort of assertion mm. um, definitively. Um, yeah, so I think I hope that clarifies it a bit. Yeah, like it's it's helpful to I think make that really clear. There's there's nothing in the Bible that says if you are suffering this thing, that definitely means it is a you know punishment for this specific sin. Like it may be, but it's it's we 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 can't yeah we can't categorically draw those conclusions. Like a passage like John nine is helpful. Like I think to sort of tie this up a bit, if I can ask another question, James. I mean, like there may be some of us, you know, some of the people of our church listening in today. You know, I know also, there's all kinds of suffering going on out there in our culture at the moment. Um, lockdown has you know caused all sorts of things that we're wrestling with, and other things besides. Like for someone who's listening today and is going through a a time of pain and suffering, yeah, how would you encourage them to think about that in in light of the kinds of things we've been discussing? 
And it's it's hard to give too specific an answer without knowing you and your particular situation. But if I could speak in generalities, uh, I'd say maybe three things. One is to 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 lament. I think it's good and right for us to lament um, uh, the pain that we experience, the suffering that is in the world, the disconnectedness we feel. Um, it is good and right to lament. Um, because the other thing that the Bible says is that God, um, well, we, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We know one, the Lord Jesus, who himself is familiar with suffering. Um, and so we can lament, and it is right to lament, and we can bring that lament to God. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. Second of all is to, is to hope and to trust in the promises of God to know that um, what we're experiencing, what you're experiencing um, is uh, a result of uh, what we all have done in the world and yet relief is coming. Relief is coming. Uh, so number one, uh, lament. Number two, to, to hope. Uh, and I'd say number three um, is, to, is to connect, to connect with others for support. Um, uh, suffering in, in the New Testament, we're, we're called to, to, to encourage one another daily um, uh, and to bear one another's burdens. And so we don't need to suffer individually. We can suffer together. Uh, in fact, we are called to, to, to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters and to do so together. So sorry that's so inadequate as a specific answer, but lament, hope, connect. That's what I'd say. I think that's really helpful as a general answer, James. Thank you for that. That's that's clear. That's that, that's something we can take away. And yeah, I'd encourage you particularly on that last point if you're listening in. It's it's always hard to talk about these things in abstract, but like you've said, James, we're, we're meant to connect. We're meant to do this together. So if you are going through tough things, like let me encourage you to reach out to someone. Maybe it's a growth group leader. Maybe it's another trusted Christian friend. But yeah, may there be someone you can talk to about these things and, and do it together. I think that's really important. We'll run on to our very last question here today. Uh, James, you use the language of taking every thought captive, that, that line from 2 Corinthians 10 a couple of times. Someone's asked, what are some tips you have around using social media that may help us to keep taking our thoughts captive to Christ? Hmm. That's a good question. Not to say the other ones weren't good. But <laughs> <laughs> just for listeners, um, when we say that, that means we're initially unsure how to answer, by the way. Just, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> Let me give you a couple more minutes to think. <laughs> well, you, you know, Jack, I think that's the first time I've said a good question, but the whole way through, I'm not sure how to answer. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's, it's a mental break, right? That's right. Uh, okay, here are two things that come to mind. I think the first thing, um, which I think I did refer to this in one of the services on Sunday, is uh, Philippians chapter 4 about, um, uh, let, let me just open it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so the first thing I think I'd say about taking your thoughts captive around using things like social media is to, um, to, to select um, to be selective in what you're doing on social media. Um, run it through, you know, the thoughts. Is is this true? Is this right? Is this lovely? Is this pure? Is this excellent? 
because there may be things that you are participating in or looking at or watching or listening to on social media that aren't good for you. If you know that uh, a particular channel just stirs up dissatisfaction and envy, um, a profound, you know, um, feeling of jealousy towards others, then that's not a good thing for you to keep, uh, to keep um, connecting with, maybe following. Um, so I'd say, first of all, be selective in what you're um, engaging in mm. on social media. Yeah, helpful. Uh, and I think the second thing uh, that comes to mind um, is to say, be, um, be quick to, 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 to scroll, be quick to scroll. Um, and what I mean by that is this, um, we're very good at if something doesn't catch our attention to just keep going. Um, this is why our stories, when they first started, um, like Instagram, Snapchat stories, they were 15 seconds long. It's because that's the average attention span of a Gen Z person. If you don't capture someone in 15 seconds, then, you know, you've lost their attention. Right. But whenever we stop at something, it's because something has caught our eye. Mm. And it's good to ask yourself why this thing has caught your eye. And so what I'd say is learn to be quick to scroll um, if you know that the reason why it's caught your eye is not a good thing. Mm. Um, this is very general stuff. So be selective and be quick to scroll um, are just two tips there. There's a lot more that could be said. I hope that that's helpful as a starting point. Yeah, for sure. No, it's good. Good place to start. And thank you for that. We have come to the end of our questions and they have all been good questions and they're, they're wonderful things for us to wrestle through. So please do keep sending your questions in week by week. James, as we wrap up, can you give us a little taster? Where are we headed uh, next Sunday? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Jack. So this Sunday, Rod will be back and we're going to be finishing off chapter two, Joel chapter two, verses 28 to 32. And what we're going to see is a profound promise as God is continuing to, to show how he's going to bring restoration to his people. And it's a promise that has profound implications. Not that the other things haven't, but this has profound implications for, as we'll see, for what it means for every person who is a Christian um, to be living after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're really looking forward to that and what it means for us in the life of our church community here at St. Paul's. Fantastic. Get excited. We are looking forward to getting into that. James, thank you for your work. We, we thank God for you, for your work in the text, for bringing it to us. Yeah, thank you for all of that and for answering our questions too. So those who've listened in, yeah, we, we pray and hope that uh, you are having a good week and coping in, in lockdown and we're, we are praying for you and we hope that we'll get to engage with you on Sunday. So until then, goodbye for now.